Well, hello there. So glad that you're for this very first meeting discussing the prospect of uh, biblical counseling ministry at Providence Community Church. Now, from the outset, I just want to let you know that this is going to be an unapologetic sales pitch slash pep rally meant to manipulate you into becoming biblical counselors. Of course, I don't mean that entirely, but I do mean that the purpose of this is to give you at least some small percentage of the excitement I feel about the prospect of starting this ministry and some percentage of the appreciation I feel for having been a part of biblical counseling in various scenarios for the last 20 years. Now, speaking of scenarios, I want to put a couple in front of you, two hypothetical scenarios. Scenario number one, imagine taking a road trip where there are 90% fewer bathrooms on the highway than exist today. So you're going on a long road trip, 10 to 20 hours long, maybe one to two days. But in this hypothetical world, there are about 90% fewer bathrooms than exist today. So about 10% of the bathrooms that actually exist today. The idea of, of going on a really long road trip without almost any bathrooms um, would make the trip extremely uncomfortable, though, of course, the trip would still be possible. Now, I want you to imagine a second scenario. Instead of taking 90% of the existing bathrooms away on our 10 to 20 hour road trip, let's take 90% of the gas pumps away. So now you're on a road trip where only 10% of the current gas pumps actually exist along the highway. And I think if you thought about that, what you'd see is that scenario one, very few bathrooms would make the journey uncomfortable. Scenario two, very few gas stations, very few gas pumps would make the journey impossible. And so I want to ask you if godly friendships are more like bathrooms or gas pumps. I mean, I think the answer is both. They certainly are places for relief, and they are also places for refueling. But I think the idea is that not only does a lack of godly friendships make our journey in the Christian life uncomfortable, but I think it gets closer to impossible. Um, now, there are plenty of places in the world where there are actually massive stretches of road with no gas stations and no bathrooms, and we call those places the third world. And I'm pretty sure that none of us want to live in those places, <laughs> unless the Lord calls. Um, in my experience, the majority of good local churches that are healthy and, you know, trying to be not third world churches, um, I guess you could say, that are really trying to be the body of Christ in their world, trying to pursue excellence, the majority of those churches will wind up having some kind of formal counseling ministry. So in other words, what we're talking about today is probably more the rule than the exception. Uh, 
for the kind of church that we want to become. Having a counseling ministry is really almost a necessity, okay? Why? Because the Christian life is a long road trip, and we are invested in helping people both finish the trip but also flourish along the way. We want them to be uh, able to finish the trip. We also want them to enjoy the trip as much as possible because joy is an essential part of our praise of the Lord. So in order to do that, in order to help Christians continue in their long road trip, we need to build an infrastructure that supports that journey. So really establishing a biblical counseling ministry is rooted in a few practical realizations. Number one, people have limitations. They have limited spiritual gas tanks, and I guess you could say limited bladders. People have limited spiritual gas tanks and bladders. That means they need to be filled. They need to be fed biblical truth. And, you know, they also need to be emptied. Uh, Confession of sin, for instance. You know, sometimes there were pieces of, well, any revolution or any reformation can sometimes do a kind of like tear this down because it's wrong thing. And then, you know, you do that and you, you forget to ask, like, but was that thing serving a purpose? Although it was wrong, was that thing serving a purpose? And I've often felt that way about um, Catholic confession. You know, it was far more ritualized and sacramentalized and formalized and monetized and so on and so forth. Like, it wasn't a good thing. But did we think through <laughs> what why people were doing it. <laughs> were there any good reasons for people doing it? And truth is, is that we are called in scripture to confess sin and maybe having a little bit of a structure allowing people to do that is not a bad thing. So anyway, that's a sidetrack. The basic idea I'm trying to get to is, is that we're going to build a biblical counseling ministry uh, because to be honest, probably most churches that have um, an aspiration to be effective uh, bodies of Christ will do that. That's This is just kind of one of those things that needs to happen. Why? Because people have limited spiritual gas tanks and limited bladders. They need to be filled. They need to be emptied. Um, and there's another big thing that's super practical, and that is in the moments when someone is running on spiritual fumes or full of what you might call uh, sin we, <laughs> those are not the ideal moments to tell someone, yeah, I know you, I know you're barely got any gas left. All right. I know you're full of sin. You should go out and build relationships and mentors and so on and so forth. What you need to do is you need to anticipate that that state of running on spiritual fumes, being full of sin, that state is just a part of unfortunate part of the Christian life. And we, as leaders of the church, need to build systems anticipating those moments so that when people are in those moments, they don't have to build something. They can just pull in off of the interstate and partake in the services that are provided for them to meet those needs. So number one, people have limitations. Number two, it's a terrible time when they're in the middle of crisis to ask them to go out and build a system 
to go out and find a mentor, to go out and find a discipler. It'd be much better if you said, go talk to Bob rather than go find a Bob. And then the third thing is, is that, that in addition to caring for people that are hurting, here's another thing that's crucial. Uh, believe this with all my heart. Many Christians are built by God to do this ministry. And so one of the things that we see God's word calling us to is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Uh, and the truth is, is that there are many Christians who God has saved and equipped to do the ministry of biblical counseling. So they are built to do this ministry, but, but, but they're built to do this ministry, but they're not built to build a ministry. And this is a huge part of like leading a church is to realize that there are people that are built to do ministries that are not built to build ministries. And so as a function of equipping the saints to do ministries, we provide context for the saints to do these particular ministries. The truth is there are literally Christians and I'm, I'm thinking I'm talking to some of them right now. There are, there are Christians who are not going to experience God's best for them until they start serving as biblical counselors. But you're called to serve as a biblical counselor, not build a biblical counseling ministry. We need to do that for you, and then you need to function within it. That's my vision. So local churches should build biblical counseling ministries. The average church member is going to have plenty of times in their life when they need to refill or empty. And there are plenty of people who are going to use that, and there are plenty of people who honestly, they need to do it. There are plenty of people who would use this ministry if it existed, and there are plenty of people who need to do this work in this ministry if it existed. So moving on from there, I want to talk about some of the practical pieces in the book of Romans. Obviously, Romans is a, a beautiful, glorious cathedral of theological truth. I think people fail to recognize that there are some really interesting practical pieces of the Christian life contained in the book of Romans. So I want to walk you through just real quickly a kind of survey of that material. If you do wind up doing um, walking with us in biblical counseling, you're going to encounter the following verse at some point. Well, probably multiple points in almost everything we hand you to read uh, at some point in, in anything related to biblical counseling, you'll encounter Romans fifteen fourteen, which says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. Now that word satisfied, Paul says, I'm satisfied. It's probably better to say confident. So I'm just going to say, I myself am confident about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. I myself am confident about you, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Paul is confident that the Romans themselves are able to instruct one another. The word for instruct is anutheteo in the Greek, which is the biblical counseling word. It's kind of the key biblical counseling word. Anutheteo means to provide instruction so as to correct behavior and belief. Okay, so that's essentially what we're doing here. We're we're looking at Romans 15 saying, you know, there are people in our church now who are able to instruct one another. Or, you know, if they're not able immediately, they just need a little bit of uh, a little bit of equipping work and they would be able. And again, I think I'm talking to some of those people right now. 
So nutheteo means to provide instruction to correct behavior and belief. And the idea is to create a ministry where believers do that for one another. Now, I want you to notice before we move on from Romans 15, I want you to notice the next verse Paul writes, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. So listen to this in totality. Verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. So this text offers a key distinction between two forms of discipleship. There's the kind Paul is doing throughout the book of Romans, which is found in verse 15. I guess you could say that's official instruction, preaching, teaching. And then there is the kind of personal discipleship that members do for one another. So there's two different kinds of discipleship actually in these two verses. In verse 14, it's an interpersonal thing. And in verse 15, it's more of a, you know, a formal thing. So I think this is actually a pretty huge paradigm shifter or has been for me. Once I realized that when Paul is writing scripture, he is counting on people taking his official word to one another and applying it in interpersonal contexts. He is not thinking that he is going to speak directly to each individual and that that's all that's going to take place. He's thinking that he's speaking to individuals, but he's also speaking into friendships, into discipleship contexts. I think it's a huge idea because it tells us that Paul never felt like the scriptures were going to fully make their way into the hearts and minds of the people by merely reading what he wrote. All along, Paul understood that the word of God gets worked into the hearts and minds of people in various ways. I have a friend who's kind of an expert on discipleship, and he talks about it using the metaphor of golf. He says that preaching and teaching is sort of like the driver. It's the, it's the long-distance kind of shot. It covers a lot of ground. But then the next step is sort of an intermediary shot, your wedges, um, your irons. And this is what, in his opinion, as he's worked in discipleship for many years, he thinks that this is kind of the role of the small group. So you've kind of got in the driver, um, the, the big shot, that's the one person speaking to, you know, 100 or 200, 300 people or whatever. And then in the irons, you've got a less ground covered, but it's more precise. It's aimed more precisely. And he would say that that's the small group kind of context where you've got, you know, a group of Christians, maybe, you know, 10 to 20 Christians interacting together in a home. And in his opinion, the most neglected part is what I'm talking to you about today. And that is the, the, the one-on-one kind of putting game where the amount of distance you have to cover isn't very far, but the amount of precision you need is like extreme the amount of precision you need to get the little ball into the little hole is extreme. And the more precision you need, the more the interpersonal one-on-one type relationship comes into four. And so it seems like Paul always understood that there were layers of discipleship and that different distances were covered by different approaches to discipleship. In fact, that's actually what's going on at the beginning of the book of Romans. 
people skip over this part for all the scandalous stuff in Romans 1. But there's actually a bunch of practical things in Romans 1 about sort of just interpersonal discipleship. In Romans 1, 9 through 10, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So here we see for Paul the priority of spiritual development. For here we see for Paul the priority of spiritual development. It's almost as if Paul is saying, what I really want is to be with you physically, but in the meantime, you know, this humble letter called Romans will have to do. It's a bit of an overstatement, but you can see what I'm getting at, verses 9 through 10. What he really wants is to be with him personally. So here we see the priority of interpersonal spiritual development. And then from there we see in verse 11, he says this, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So now we see the purpose of interpersonal spiritual development. We saw the priority in verse 10. Now we see the purpose. Why is, what is the purpose? To impart to them in person some spiritual gift that would strengthen them. Now this appears to be a situation where the interpersonal dynamic, being with someone individually, is required in order to impart this spiritual gift that Paul wants to strengthen them with. So there's something about this that almost makes it like that we have to do it this way. I can do I can give you this teaching, I can give you this writing, but there are some gifts I have to give you in person. You know, I've been thinking a lot about counseling uh, and as I've prepared for all this, and I, I rarely, if ever, felt like I had time to do it. I've done a lot of it. I've rarely, if ever, felt like I had time to do it. It always felt like an imposition to some degree or another. And if there was a way of getting out of it, I usually tried to get out of it. But, I uh, caveat, I would try to get out of it. I didn't think it was necessary. But almost always, I did wind up feeling like it was necessary. And what I mean by that is, is that there are just moments in life where the Christian arrives at a point where further progress in their faith depends on a personal conversation. The other means of grace, Bible reading, church attendance, Bible study, prayer, they're all working, but they're not finishing. They're not getting that final little bit without someone else using all of those things. I'm not talking about um, relationship versus Scripture. I'm talking about relationship in the service of Scripture and Scripture in the service of relationship. And so, but there's this, this sort of moments you'll see in people's lives where they just have to have. They just have to have. There's, there's no other option. They just have to have a one-on-one -on -one or an interpersonal connection so that they can be strengthened. That's just a part of the Christian life. In verse 12, Paul says, that is, uh, this is sort of an interesting piece of this. In verse 12, Paul says, that is that we may mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So 
uh, here he's talking about the prize of interpersonal spiritual development. We saw the priority and then the purpose, and now we see the prize. He says, that is, that we may mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The truth is, after all these years of doing biblical counseling, I am unquestionably closer to God as a result of all this work. And that even when another person's faith is barely there at all, basically running on fumes, I, I never end a counseling relationship without having learned something about Jesus and also myself. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says that we're going to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That doesn't mean that they had equal faith. That doesn't mean that they, had, they both had the same amount of things to learn or that they were even going to learn from each other in the same way. Indeed, you know, I was thinking that often as I've, I have been corrected in my own heart as I have offered correction to others, it, there have been countless times when I help someone with a sin that was simply more mature in its development than the very same sin I had in my own life. You know, their sin, uh, my sin was a seedling, their sin was an oak, but it was the same seed. And I, it's one of the ways that I've been helped among many. And then, of course, I mean, the truth is, is that we all doubt whether the gospel really is the power of God unto salvation and whether or not the word of God is sufficient and whether or not it really changes people and so on and so forth. And when you engage in this ministry, you do see God working, which has its own faith strengthening rewards. And there's another prize. I mean, the truth is, is that and this is just the truth and I can't believe it. I can't believe it when I say it. But the truth is, I will actually, when I get to heaven, meet people there who, for instance, came to faith because their parents stayed married and fell back in love with Jesus. And I will have some small part of that story. Or I will get to heaven and I'll be reacquainted with people who got free from some stupid sin. Some stupid sin that actually had way more bark than bite and was actually way more inconsequential in terms of like we dealt with it well and and relatively quickly. Um, I will be reacquainted with people who got free of some dumb thing that really was just waiting on a series of conversations. And then they lived, you know, the rest of their lives with that thing missing, with that thing gone, uh, much to their own joy and relief. When I get to heaven, I will be um, reconnected with people who were when they came in to talk with me, falsely converted, and when they ended their time with me, legitimately saved. And none of that is because I'm great. I'm actually terrible at this. My big mistake and virtue in life is I just say yes a lot. And, um, and so I don't want to point any of this to me. I just want to say, like, I just just said yes. Didn't, didn't often want to say yes, but said yes to meeting with people to sharing God's word with them. And I have seen, in fact, there is a great prize for interpersonal spiritual development. And last thing I want you to see is verse 13 in Romans 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I might reap a harvest among you as well as amongst the rest of the Gentiles. And so we've talked about the priority and the purpose and the prize, but here we see the problem of interpersonal spiritual development, the problem the problem is simply this. There are only so many Pauls. Though his desire is to personally engage in spiritual development with each one of them, it was simply not possible 
and it didn't even appear to be God's will in the moment. God's will seems to have been more like, Paul, you write them the truth <clears throat> and then let them talk about it with one another. And friends, one of the things I've learned over time is, is that God's will is always more decentralized than we understand. God's work is always more decentralized than we understand. When we talk about the body of Christ, I think we really only think about like, you know what, four things, <laughs> the head and the torso and like the limbs or something like that. We don't think about the, you know, fourth metatarsal or whatever. God, there are more people that need to do God's work and more people involved in accomplishing God's will than we realize. And so, uh, Paul, the problem of interpersonal discipleship is, is that there's just not enough people saying yes. There's just a, a, an extreme bottleneck of people willing to be, you know, on the gas stations in the Christian life. Well, um, I want you to consider being one of those people. So what about next steps? Well, first of all, um, you know, I want to talk about how to talk about this or how to, what, what we should call this. So Jay Adams, who I think is, you know, the father of biblical counseling, I don't think that's a controversial statement. He would talk about uh, biblical counseling from Romans 15, and he would call it neuthetic counseling. And then a guy named David Pallison came along, and he started referring, it to, referring to it as biblical counseling, which is basically, you know, uh, intentionally helpful conversations. That's what he started. He started, he started, uh, Jay Adams called it neuthetic counseling. And then David Pallison started saying, well, let's start talking to it about it as intentionally helpful conversations. Now, if you get to know the personality of these two men, you would understand entirely why one is, you know, using a, a word that doesn't exist, you know, a Greek word, <laughs> a dead language word. And the other is like using like Mr. Rogers terminology. What's an intentionally helpful conversation? The truth is I actually really like Pallison's statement about intentionally helpful conversation because it dispels the notion that Christian counseling is like the unique domain of highly trained professionals. Rather, it's every believer who in love speaks God's truth to one another. That's biblical counseling. So I, I actually like the phrase intentionally helpful conversations, and I, I encourage you to use it. I will use it. Um, but if there's any drawback to it at all, it's that the phrase intentionally helpful conversations lacks any reference to the Bible. And the Bible is really the only thing we've got going for us. And really the only reason that this is all possible is because of the Bible and that it is living and active through the Spirit of God. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That the man of God may be complete for every good work. Now here's something that might surprise you. You know, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in total depravity and so forth. Um, but I will tell you that 80 to 90% of the people I've ever counseled wanted to do good. That might not have been all they wanted to do, but there was a part of them that wanted to do good. 80-90% of the people I ever counseled wanted to do good. For the most part, they were living out various degrees of what Paul describes in Romans 7. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
2 Timothy 3.17 says that the word of God is useful for that. It's, it's useful to help people do good. So, and there are, by the way, lots of other verses that tell us the same thing. So while uh, intentionally helpful conversations makes the process seem approachable, you know, that phrase makes it seem more approachable, both to the counselee and the counselor. The term biblical counseling makes sense, too, because it makes things more hopeful. Because the word of God really does change people. So what do we do from here? Well, I'm going to rely on Dove to figure out the practical issues in terms of, you know, not only timing, but some scope and sequence for our teaching and so forth. But in abstract terms, here's what I would tell you my commitment is. I want once a quarter for those interested in this ministry to meet together and feast both on good food and lots of information. And that's my commitment to you. As long as you volunteer for this ministry, I'll keep bringing you stuff that will encourage and equip you. And I promise you, you'll never run out of fuel. You'll be more like the gas station who has a bunch of fuel, not like the car who only has, you know, eight to 10 gallons. And because nobody wants to or should listen to me exclusively, I'll make sure that I bring in plenty of the friends I know that have been doing this ministry for quite some time. When appropriate, after some season of uh, equipping, and when you're ready, and we agree that you're ready, you will announce your availability to the church. Uh, to the people of our church, you'll become the equivalent of a Bucky's or at least a QT on the highway. They will know you exist and that you are there to help them. And as you help people, I'll help you. So until you get really comfortable, you'll never take on more than one case at a time. And even after that, probably only take on about two and of course we'll filter assignments by gender and problem and so on and so forth and I guess the other thing to add is that eventually we're going to need people to be specialized so some folks will get good at dealing with marriage and parenting and some people will be good at addictions and we actually are going to need some people that are good at apologetics and just general spiritual formation as well <clears throat> 